And hello there, Peter Mansbridge here. You are just moments away from the latest episode of The Bridge. Is the fighting about to begin again in Gaza? Or is the pause going to continue? That's coming right up. And hello there, Peter Mansbridge in Stratford, Ontario. Good to have you with us. Good to begin another week of the bridge. Big week for me. I head out on a book tour in a couple of days on uh, my new book, How Canada Works. And I'll be going uh, to different parts of the country, starting off in southern Ontario, then heading out to the east coast to Halifax, then out to Ottawa, Winnipeg, Calgary, and back again to southern Ontario. So um, quite a bit of traveling over the next uh, 10 days or so. That should start on Thursday of this week. Looking forward to it. Always looking forward to the opportunity of uh, meeting Canadians, talking to them about the various issues that are on their mind, while at the same time trying to tell them about my uh, my new book. Uh, and that, of course, is co-authored with Mark Bulgich. Last week, Mark uh, was one of the guests on the program, and we had a good chat about how Canada works and what the book's all about. So if you missed it and want to hear it, dial it back to last Tuesday on the bridge you can um, uh, you can have a listen right there all right um the topic for today uh once again it's monday and mondays since october 7th have been uh, focused on what's happening in the war between israel and hamas and specifically around gaza as you well know we're in day four of a kind of truce a pause where there have been exchanges from both sides the fighting stopped Hamas has given up some of the hostages. Israel has exchanged prisoners, Hamas prisoners, Palestinian prisoners who they were holding, and released them. That's been kind of the deal that's been going back and forth, as well as a lot of humanitarian aid going into Gaza. Will it continue? That is the big question. And if it is going to continue, how long should we assume it could continue? Could we be looking at the possibility that this is going to end now? Or is it simply just a pause? Well, as we've done uh, ever since this started, uh, we turn to Janice Stein from the Monk School at the University of Toronto, Middle East expert, expert in conflict management, advisor to governments and organizations, literally, around the world. Janice has been fantastic. It was interesting. I was watching a, a discussion on, um, on an American television program over the weekend, and it was like they just discovered that all the hostages weren't held by Hamas. Some were held by Islamic Jihad. Some were held by different kind of gangs. Funny, eh? Janice told us that a month ago. Um, there's been this assumption on the part of a lot of the coverage that it's all Hamas controlling all the hostages. Well, that's not the case. And it's part of the problem right now is these different groups that are holding some of the hostages. Some of them don't talk to each other. Okay, Um, let's get to uh, the real expert, and that, of course, is Janice, Janice Stein. And uh, our conversation uh, for this week in terms of what's, really going on in the Israel-Hamas war, 
and the situations around Gaza. So here's Dr. Janice Stein. Well, Janice, so far, and I realize these things can, uh, you know, can go off the rails at any point, but so far things seem to have gone without any major problems on the hostage release, the prisoner swap. How do you see it when you look at the big picture surrounding these past few days? I think that's exactly right, Peter. And partly because this was such a well-crafted architecture. This was done by professionals. Sometimes we ask ourselves, well, why do we need diplomats? And why do we need experts? This package was put together in such a careful and skilled way. And it was put to the test on the second day when Hamas raised objections to the amount of aid that had come in that morning and also to the kind of prisoners that were being released, well, the the emergency uh, mechanisms that were pre-built, pre-constructed, swung into place. Um, Qatar got on the phone. Egypt got on the phone. And ultimately, Joe Biden, and it was Thanksgiving weekend, uh, reached out and put the pressure uh, on Qatar, interestingly enough, saying, you're, 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 you're part owner here. Um, you make this work. And the other piece of it, and that's going to tell us a little bit about the future, um, Israel said very clearly, if those hostages are not across the border before midnight, the war starts at 12.01. The hostages cross the border just before midnight. Yeah, like 11.59. Yeah. Um, let me back you up just a second, because I found I found your point about how well-crafted this deal has been and who was doing the crafting, because this is a, this has been a little different than past kind of hostage negotiations we've seen, uh, because it wasn't, it wasn't really the diplomats, at least at the beginning, in Qatar, uh, it was <laughs> heads of spy agencies like the CIA yeah. and the Mossad who were doing the dealing. Really interesting, uh, Peter, because um, the, the one of really, really accomplished hostage negotiator, one of the U.S.'s best, Roger Carson, actually went to the region to start work and then came home. And the, that, I think, was a... Joe Biden decision, and he put Bill Burns, the director of the CIA, um, as the point man. Um, he went to Qatar, joined by the head of the Mossad, David Barnett. Again, not exactly whom you would expect to be at the table. And they sat there and worked with their counterparts um, in Qatar along um, with the director of Egyptian intelligence. And they built this agreement step by step. And I think there's two remarkable things about this. How they structured the incentives. So that's we're going to talk about that in a moment when we try to figure out what's next. But also they built in a crisis management machinery for when it broke down. They knew that either Israel or Hamas would test this. And it was Hamas who tested it first and frankly lost 
um, yesterday because they activated that crisis machinery. They had it ready. It was in place um, and it worked really, really well. You didn't have uh, the usual kind of fumbling around that takes place when these when these arrangements break down. They're really impressive, really impressive. And in the past, they've taken not days, not weeks, but like months and in some cases years uh, yeah. to pull off a thing like this. So what does yeah. that tell us about about the future of negotiations? We'll get to the future of this situation in a moment, but the future of negotiations, are we, does this signal that there, there could be a, a difference in the future that others will use as a, as a pattern for negotiating out of difficult situations like this? It, it, this is such an anomalous one, Peter, because... It's a hostage negotiation, but it's not. Uh, And I think that's what uh, Biden and Jake Sullivan realized on day one. First of all, the largest hostage negotiation other than Boko Haram in Nigeria, where they kidnapped so many young girls. But this one's in the middle of a war, (laughs) an active war. So really this was just as much about one getting a pause to get all that aid in. That was very, very important. And secondly, trying to set a path for the future. So no matter how good a hostage negotiator you are, that's not in your skill set, really. They needed people who had a firm grasp of two things. One, the bigger picture, but also who were connected to each other who could pick up the phone and were confident that those relationships would work, that they had each other's cell phone numbers, literally, uh, and could reach out and get those messages through in real time. And that's what went on yesterday afternoon. And it was like really a matter of hours and it worked. And not to think how difficult, Peter, because they had to reach the military leadership of Hamas that's underground in Gaza. So to get that done in four or five hours, that's remarkable. Um, seeing as you've brought it up, let me ask you this question about before, before we go on to what, what we should expect in the days ahead. Um, seeing as you mentioned underground, I want to, I want to ask you this question because we yeah. had a few letters last week asking, yeah. uh, the, there seemed to be some confusion um, around how the tunnels started, basically. And one of the questions that had come up was, I thought Israel built all those tunnels, or at least built some of those tunnels. Um, and, you know, we, we, we're putting it forward like it's all, it's all about Hamas building the tunnels. So how does, what is the explanation on the tunnels? How did those so tunnels start? So let's go back to the 1980s. When oh, I wish we could. It, I wish <laughs> there are many who would agree with you there, Peter. Uh, when Israel was had not yet withdrawn from Gaza, it was the occupying power in Gaza, right? Because Israel withdraws from Gaza in 2005. So uh, Israel helped build Al Shifa Hospital. And there was an interview that the former prime minister of Israel, Ehud Barak, gave to Christine Anampour of CNN, in which he said to her, yeah, we built the underground basement, was what he said, (laughs) 
for the Oshifa Hospital for storage. So we knew about that's absolutely correct. That what that's what happened. Uh, it was a big. He described it as a big storage room. That's different from the whole tunnel network that was built subsequently uh, after Hamas took control of the Gaza Strip. First takes control when Israel withdraws in 2005. Uh, then there's an election in 2006, as we know. Uh, PLO wins in the West Bank, but Hamas wins in Gaza. And in 2007, Frank, there's a coup by Hamas against uh, Arafat. And that's where that split happens. The tunnels that we're talking about, what, you know, the 300 miles of tunnels, those are all built uh, by Hamas after 2007. But the the beginnings of the tunnels or the underground beneath the hospital is built was built as a very large storage room for the al-shifa hospital okay right but if again just to come back because it's so easy it's hard to separate these um because there's a storage room but what was also videoed and again we have to make sure that it's geolocated properly and that it's in the right place. Uh, but what was released last week was 170 meter tunnels with steel reinforced doors that connected in to the Al Shifa Hospital. That was built after 2007. Okay. Um, all right. Let's. So the two stories fit together. As stories yeah, no, often do. They're exactly. not incompatible. One right. or the other. Okay, let, let's get to, uh, you know, we all have our uh, fingers crossed that the uh, exchange is going to go forward and the the primary uh, people who are going to benefit from this on the hostage side are, are, are women and children. Uh, a lot of children uh, have come out already. On the uh, Hamas side, it, the benefit obviously is they're getting some of their uh, the prisoners back, a, a significant number of them, I think. You know, uh, 300. For 300. Now, the question is, once the uh, Hamas has run out of uh, women and children hostages, are they going to still want to keep doing deals? Because the expectation is there'll be some kind of, you know, movement towards, you know, extra days in this four-day pause and with, with more uh, hostage releases. Um, but at a certain point, I mean, it's one thing to give up women and children, it's another thing to give up men, yeah. especially men yeah. of, of uh, fighting age and an yeah. army. Right? There's a lot of army, Israeli yeah. army people in, uh, being held as hostage. What is your expectation of what's, how this is going to unfold? So let me get really down in the weeds here for just one minute okay. because it, 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 the story is in the detail. So at the end of four days, um, roughly 50 women and children in exchange for 150 Palestinian prisoners, but Israel released a list of 300, which is a signal to Hamas. We will continue to release at a three to one ratio, but for whom, Peter, for more children, because they will release all the women, but all the children that have been taken hostage are not yet on that list. Um, and where are those kids, right? Where are the children? So 
Palestine Islamic Jihad may have some. Gangs that came in that morning may have some. So the question now becomes, can Hamas find those kits? Has been able to use the pause to find these kits somewhere in Gaza so that it can put an extra 10 on a list in return for which they'll get another 30 prisoners. And here's where let's talk about the people who crafted this deal. Here's the incentive structure. Every day that Hamas puts 10 more women and children. Now, of course, if they were willing to put men on, that would be fine, but they've signaled they're not willing to do that for the reason you just mentioned. They have to put 10 more on the list, 30 more Palestinian prisoners, right up to 10 days. Not clear how many more, and we and we won't know. Each night, we won't know. So what did I learn from this glitch that went on yesterday, right? Two things. Um, one, the ball's in Hamas's court. So if this fighting starts again, if the war starts again, which is clearly what the Israeli military wants, it is clearly what the Biden administration does not want. And the political wing of Hamas, Ismail Haniya, said we want now a long-lasting truce. Well, it's going to be really hard to persuade anybody in Israel that the political wing carries any weight, given what happened. Uh, but if the fighting starts, it's going to be on Hamas for failing to bring additional children or moving and releasing some of the men who are not soldiers. Um, that's part of the dilemma that Hamas now finds itself in. Secondly, well, does Israel really mean it? Will it start the war again? What they did on Saturday, as I said, that was a test. It was a game of chicken, as we might say, between Israel and Hamas. Hamas blinked because they must have believed that Israel would start firing again at 12.01 if those hostages didn't cross the border. So that tells you if Hamas doesn't find kids that they can put on the list or they don't move up and start to release some of the men, uh, Israel sending a message, it is determined to resume the war. What is your, you, you've talked to us before about the, uh, the kind of split between um, the Hamas political wing and the, and the Hamas military wing. And we may see, be seeing a little bit of that playing out right now. But on the Israeli side, there's, there, there's no question where Netanyahu stands. He wants to yeah. keep fighting. Uh, his own political survival may, may depend on him stretching this uh, war out. But in the wider, um, the wider Israeli cabinet, not just the war cabinet, but the wider cabinet, and the Israeli people themselves, where... Do we have a sense of where they are on this issue about continuing the war at, at whatever time this, the, the hostage process runs out? So there are the same divisions, uh, Peter. Let's start with the families of the remaining hostages because there still will be 140 Israeli hostages being held by Hamas uh, after Monday night. 
that's a large number. And they have proven themselves to be a very powerful block. Um, when this war started, uh, releasing the hostages was something that Netanyahu talked about in a rhetorical way, but it was not his highest priority. And the fact that these people took to the streets, uh, they demonstrated on Saturday night in the thousands. They were able to pull out thousands of people um, is what forced Netanyahu to agree um, to this setup which he, he had rejected a version of this the week before. It didn't change very much, the deal, in some details, but not much. So they are a domestic political force that has to be counted on, and they do not want a resumption in fighting because they rightly fear um, that it will jeopardize the lives of the remaining hostages. It is very clear now, Peter, from the release, that hostages are being held in tunnels. It's very, very clear um, that that intelligence is already leaking out. Um, and to the extent that there are miles and miles of tunnels that have been sealed in northern Gaza just before the ceasefire with the intention of blowing them up or flooding them, um, it's got to be a huge concern uh, for the families of the hostages that their relatives are going to be killed uh, in this next round. So they're going to put huge pressure on the Israeli government. Military mission not completed. <laughs> um, not fully complete in northern Gaza uh, and not started in southern Gaza. Um, the intelligence agencies, um, I think there's much greater division there than there is in the military. And partly because Let's just talk about this for a minute. Um, the way there were, there's been the highest number of civilian casualties in the shortest amount of time killed in Gaza in those six weeks of fighting. That happened even though people were told over and over and over again, move south, which they did. So northern Gaza, relatively speaking, is much less populated than southern Gaza. If you, if the Israeli army has to move south, how do they deal with um, a part of you know with the part of Gaza that is densely populated, but now doubly densely populated because of all the people who've moved south? Um, how, how do you construct any kind of safe havens? They can't go back north. Uh, because, in fact, there's no place for them to live. Uh, the destruction is so big. The, the challenges are enormous, frankly, uh, for another campaign. So I think there are those divisions between the intelligence community and the military community. I wouldn't be surprised if some are are hoping for extra time, frankly. But ultimately, this is going to be a Netanyahu decision. Right. The incentives are running the wrong way for him. He, if we speak plain English here, he has a horrible conflict of interest. And somebody who, I was saying just yesterday, somebody just imagine if the Brits had left Neville Chamberlain in office. Right. Um, 
in the war, right? And let him run the war. And by the way, he was facing criminal charges for some malfeasance as soon as the war was over. An awful situation. Netanyahu has been running in a conflict of interest situation for a number of years now. Yeah. Long, long before October seventh, yeah. um, let me let me ask you. Um, you know, maybe we should think about it in the United States and other. It might be interesting yeah. to have a regulation that if you're if you're criminally charged, you step down. Right? Maybe we haven't got that right. Yeah, I always thought that was the case, but apparently it's not. Um, let me let me ask you this. I mean, um, I know you're Doctor Janice Stein, but it's not a medical <laughs> thing, and I'm. I'm Dr. Peter Mansbridge, but they're all honorary. So uh, our ability to uh, judge the medical condition of people is is not no. is not appropriate. But when we watch these hostages come out, and you know, let's face it, the major concern is going to be the impact on their uh, emotional and 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 mental state, given what they've been through. Um, but when you look at them and their physical state. And what we've heard in the early, you know, analysis of this, they look in in pretty good shape. Yeah. So, you know, what do we know? And we know very little. Um, And it's actually right that we know very little because they're trying to protect uh, the privacy of these people. But we do know just a little bit. So one third approximately have serious physical problems as well right and part of it you know it's not surprising people are having problems with their vision because they were held in tunnels for 45 days or so um but the largest issues are the emotional and the mental health issues and you know some of them um learned only after they got to the hospitals that their family members were dead, had been killed. They are not going back to the original homes uh, because those homes are completely destroyed. Uh, It's almost impossible to imagine what that does to a young person. And some of these, you know, yesterday, uh, 13 and a 17 year old were released. Um, to find out that one of their parents had been killed. Uh, So beyond the hostage experience, um, any professional who has spoken about this said this is a a years-long problem um, for many of these people uh, who will come out. Um, So the joyous reunions on both sides, right? Palestinian prisoners who... Detainees, and we should distinguish for a minute between a detainee and a prisoner. Prisoners charged, a detainee is not, is held without charge. Um, Some of them for quite a long time, too. Yeah, that's right. Two, three years sometimes without being charged. Um, So the the joy is paramount at the moment, but then comes a really terrible, terrible adjustment. There's there's almost no trained psychologist who doesn't think that this is going to be very very hard. You know one of the one of the stories because you all, we all human and you focus on one story one family. Uh, there was a father who was interviewed uh, and he was told that his daughter was dead 
And he said, yes, because he rather, he rather, he felt that it would, that what his daughter would go through, she was some eights, I think, would be far worse and that he wanted to spare her that. Well, the information was wrong. And she was released yesterday. And I thought to myself, you know, as a parent, you you would rather, you would want that child no matter what, right? No matter what condition she would, and you would want that child alive. And so the suffering is on all sides of this, Peter. I mean, we're talking about unbelievable number of children uh, killed in Gaza. The children that you see coming back and having gone through this, you know, you have to hope, although I'm pessimistic because I know enough about politics, but you have to hope people will say enough after all this, right? You would would certainly hope so. Let me just leave... um the Middle East on this last question. And then I want to shift. I've got a couple of quick questions on Ukraine, but the last question on the Middle East is um, given what we know now, what we've seen these past few days, what we expect in the next few, where do you think we'll be on this a week from now? Well, you know, this could only go for another six days. So when you and I talk, we will be in the best possible world, we'll be at the end of the longest period of the existing agreement. And we will be right up against the wire. Well, how badly does uh, Yair Sinwa, how badly does he want the time? to regroup, to reorganize, because, of course, any fighting force takes advantage of a ceasefire. Where does he see the advantages? And if he can't find children, is he going to take that next step that you talked about, Peter, and release some men? Who and, and there's two kinds of men, right? There were men who were captured in uniform, Israeli soldiers, and there were men who were just living in those villages, but Every man in Israel up to the age of 55 is a reservist. Um, so it blurs the distinction. Is he going to release some of those who were not captured? Because he will have to, I don't think there, he will find um, 60 children. If he doesn't, um, next time you and I talk, the fighting will have resumed. Okay. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. We come back, we talk uh, Ukraine for a couple of minutes. Uh, but first of all, this. And welcome back. Peter Mansbridge here. Janice Stein is with us. And uh, we've just spent the first half of the program talking about the situation in the Middle East. We're going to switch uh, for our final thoughts on uh, this conversation with Janice on situation in Ukraine. You're listening on Sirius XM, Channel 167, Canada Talks, or on your favorite podcast platform. All right, Ukraine. Interesting uh, discussion. This has been sort of going on in the background for yeah. for a little while now, but it uh, came up again uh, this weekend. Ukraine w- was scheduled uh, for elections, presidential elections, in March of, uh, of next year. So, in other words, three or four months from now. Martial law 
in Ukraine, which exists right now because of the war, had put, has put those elections aside. But there, there is a, a growing call among some, uh, mostly in the United States, but not exclusively in the U.S., but mostly in the U.S. on the part of uh, some in the Republican Party, that there should be elections because it will give the people of Ukraine an opportunity to uh, you know, judge their president and judge the situation in terms of the war. He's, he's resisting and rejecting that, but their pressure is on. And there's lots of stake, obviously, with the American uh, support for uh, Ukraine. What uh, What is your take on this? It's a really interesting story, uh, Peter. You're right. It is coming from the Republican side of the House and from the minority. Um, and they are claiming that given the volume of aid here, they want um, somebody held accountable. It's, it's put in this language of accountability, uh, and that's why they're pushing for election. So I, I think how seriously uh, I would take that argument, uh, not, not very uh, in terms of the real substance of the issue. They're using this as a lever, frankly, um, to delay uh, and possibly withhold further aid. Uh, from Ukraine. So how does that play in Ukraine? Interestingly enough, the former president of Ukraine, who's the leader of the opposition party, uh, Poroshenko, uh, was in Halifax with us. Now, you'd think he would be out there. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, I, I support elections. He was apoplectic at the thought of elections. And he was open. He opposed any call for election and his, you know, the argument he made is of course we cannot run an election when our soldiers um, are fighting the front. And it's not trivial to think about how you organize an election in the middle of a war. Uh, Very few societies do that. But the bigger issue is here. He knows he'll lose. (laughs) We have a wartime president. In Ukraine, they, you know, if if Zelensky held an election at this point, he would probably come back stronger uh, than he did when he was originally elected and he ran on a pro-peace platform uh, and anti-corruption. That's what he ran on when he was first elected. So the opposition has more to lose here than the governing party because of his enormous popularity. Um, which is not exactly, I think, what the Republicans have in mind uh, when they push for an election uh, at this point. They probably just don't understand the internal dynamics well enough. Um, I think the prospect of it is fairly low um, just because it's such a transparent dodge. Uh, It is really about refusing to authorize additional aid for Ukraine um, as the United as the Republican Party moves into an election year. I mean, look, we had a little show in Canada, too, here. You know, right around carbon taxes, yeah. not being an argument uh, to vote against. Uh, how credible that was, we, we might leave to one of your other panels. Yeah, well, they had a pretty good go at it on Friday. <laughs> they did. They um, did. Let me... Um, you know, they, 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 
this issue of, you know, aside from all the, the politics involved in the military situation, just the simple fact of trying to run an election at a time like this, as you mentioned, yeah. with, you know, soldiers all scattered all over the place. Uh, but worse, you've got, you know, hundreds of thousands of millions of Ukrainians displaced because of the war, left the right. country. They're either in Poland or, you know, some are in Canada, some are in the U- U.S. I mean, they're all over the place. Um, How do you do it? How yeah. do you do it? You know, we have, we have, essentially, some governments allow their citizens who are out of the country to vote. So Italy does that, right? And we have huge Italian community in this country that votes. But can you imagine Ukraine trying to organize an election um, under those circumstances and ballot boxes in Canada and ballot boxes in, in Poland and, and yeah. Uh, it, it would be an, an enormous achievement. And what a distraction, frankly. Um, and, you know, last two nights, um, missiles, drones, again, the next generation, they've, they've iterated on the technology. So it's harder again for the Ukrainians to knock these out of the sky, they imagine. But imagine that occurs the night of an election, the night, the, the night before. It, it would be so difficult. That's why, to me, it's a fairly transparent dodge, political dodge. It's not real. What is real? There was another issue you wanted to bring up on Ukraine. So the issue, I think this is a a, a much bigger issue. It's tied up really in a very dispiriting package uh, for Zelensky. First of all, the war between Israel and Hamas pushed Ukraine off. Uh, and it is much more difficult for him, and he's a great salesperson for Ukraine. It's really hard for him to get the kind of international attention he was getting even six or seven weeks ago, and he's aware that that reduces support because if you're not getting attention, it's harder um, to maintain the political support. Secondly, um, his his chief of the general staff released a document that you and I talked about, which essentially characterized the war as a stalemate, which opened the floodgates um, to pressure on him. And there are all sorts of rumors and leaks now uh, that some of the governments in Europe and uh, at least people who are close um, to the government, to the administration in Washington are pressing him to think about what would be acceptable terms for ceasefire, which is, of course, what he does not want. You know, he's been asked privately, what would success look like to you? Um, he's been asked repeatedly, what would success look like to you? And he, he he won't draw a boundary, even in private conversation, um, because he here's the other side of the election story. He's well aware that if he suggests any kind of territorial compromise, even Crimea, which he has signaled in private, he would be willing to postpone way into the future. But were he to say, well, we'll leave... The 20% of Ukraine, which is what it is now in Russia's hands for 10 years, and then we'll have a referendum, um, he, he, he would lose political support in a nanosecond. 
He just can't carry his public with him for any kind of a deal. He just can't. Well, you know, it, it, it's really interesting. The, the, these two situations are so different, the Middle East and, and Ukraine. But what we've outlined today is situations of both sides where the pressure is on certain sides, certain people to keep the war going. Yes, that's right. <laughs> you know, it's always true. There's domestic politics in wartime, right? Yeah. And there's, the politics don't go away because you're fighting a war. And it's so true inside Israel, and it's true inside Ukraine, too. You know, I think back again for a moment. In the first month after the war started, there were negotiations, and Zelensky put a compromise on the table. He can't make that compromise now. You miss the opportunity before public opinion hardens and before the politics shifts if you miss that moment it's gone and you can't get it back what was that phrase that uh of that guy that you and brian talk about all the time clausewitz um yeah clausewitz yeah war, war is war. politics by other means exactly it is yeah. it is <laughs> hey. okay well listen um that's uh, that's another great conversation, and uh, as we always do, we thank you for it and uh, look forward to talking to you again next week. We'll see where we are at that point. Thanks, Janice. Thank you, Peter. Dr. Janice Stein, University of Toronto, the Monk School. Uh, Janice is Middle East expert, as we know, and uh, conflict management expert, an advisor to uh, governments and organizations literally around the world. And we're so lucky uh, to have her with us uh, each week through this, through this process before the, before October 7th, uh, Janice was a a guest uh, roughly every month with a a segment we called, what are we missing? In other words, what stories were kind of getting, well, not swept under the rug, but weren't getting the attention that perhaps they should have been getting. Um, and Janice would take us on a, you know, kind of a, a world tour, you know, half a dozen or, or eight or sometimes 10 different stories in different parts of the world that we should, we should focus on occasionally. We should at least have in mind. Um, I'm sure there's a possibility that one day we'll be back to that segment of what are we missing? But right now we're so focused on these two, Israel, Hamas, and Ukraine. And uh, Janice has been good enough to give us time every week on this. Um, we're, uh, we're missing our old friend Brian Stewart, a good friend of Janice's too, right? Um, Brian is off writing his memoirs and uh, beg for time, beg for a hiatus from his, his work with us. And uh, we, certainly, uh, we certainly gave him that, and we're looking forward to that book. That's probably a year away. Because, of course, who would want to go up against how Canada works. <laughs> uh, Mark Bulgich in my uh, book, which is uh, now out on bookshelves in bookstores across the country. All right. Um, a little plug for tomorrow. We've discussed this before. The difference between misinformation and disinformation. And just in case any of you are still perhaps a little confused on that, It's actually quite simple. Misinformation is basically when journalists or news organizations make a mistake. 
and they misinform you. Not deliberately, accidentally. And they, uh, you know, they pull back, they, they, at least they should. Uh, they should regret their mistake and correct it. That's misinformation. Disinformation is very different. Disinformation is deliberate. Informing you of the wrong facts. For any number of different reasons, but basically trying to twist your position on something by offering up disinformation on whatever the subject is. Disinformation is the scourge of our time. And it is very evident in a lot of different ways. Well, tomorrow our guest is a leading expert on the issue of disinformation. His name is Lee McIntyre. Um, he teaches at Boston University, has taught at Harvard, uh, has a number of books uh, out on uh, a variety of things around the issue of disinformation. And um, I called him up last week, and he said he'd love to be on the bridge. And so tomorrow uh, he will be. That's uh, the plan to have uh, Lee McIntyre on the bridge tomorrow, the Tuesday episode. Wednesday, Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth. Bruce will be by. Thursday, it's the Random Ranter on part two of his three-part series, Giving Advice to the Leaders. Plus, of course, your turn being your thoughts. So uh, drop them by at uh, the Mansbridge Podcast at gmail.com, the Mansbridge Podcast at gmail.com. Friday, good talk. Chantelle Bear, Bruce Anderson. Last week's good talk, whoo, it set, you know, record numbers for us on the podcast, um, I assume on SiriusXM, and uh, certainly with our new YouTube. It had, I don't know, upwards of 20,000 views uh, the last time I looked. Um, more subscribers to our YouTube channel. You know, uh, lots of wild comments in the uh, YouTube comment section. I don't know. Most of them are, you know, bots. You can tell, you know, half a name and a whole bunch of numbers. And uh, the same thread going through them all. It's uh, pretty ridiculous. Uh, but having said that, there were also some really constructive comments, both ways. Agreeing and disagreeing with what they heard on the panel that day. But I'll tell you what they heard on the panel that day. Uh, seems to have been mimicked in a lot of different areas uh, since that panel uh, in terms of the uh, thrust of what uh, what we were getting at. Anyway, enough rambling from me. Time to let you go. Great to uh, have you with us on this day, on this opening day of a yet another week of The Bridge. I'm Peter Mansbridge. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you again in 24 hours. Mm-hmm.